what's up everybody? Tim Castleman here and welcome to a very special edition of the Two Drink Tim podcast. When I had the chance to interview the gentleman I'm about to introduce to you, I literally canceled everything on my schedule uh, because I wanted to share this amazing thing that he's doing that I've seen nobody else really do when it comes to content curation, but using that information to really discover, and more importantly than discover, explain the reasons why behind current and existing trends and where he sees a lot of things going uh, in several different very important marketplaces. So before I bring my special guest on, let me tell you a little bit about him. Besides the fact that he has, and, and this will be my first question to him, of course, the most difficult name for a West Texas guy ever uh, to pronounce. So uh, Rohit Bargava, hopefully I did not butcher that too bad, uh, is a trend curator. He's also the author of five best-selling books, including the newly released Wall Street Journal bestseller, Non-Obvious, which is the book that I can't wait to talk about today. He's also the founder of Influential Marketing Group, and I found in our little uh, pre-chat talk that he's actually founded his own publishing company, which we will definitely dive into. Um, in addition to doing all of that, in his spare time, uh, he advises uh, global brands on communications and strategies and storytelling. Uh, his thinking has been featured in global media like The Guardian, Fast Company, NPR, and of course the New York Times. He is a two-time TEDx speaker and has been invited as a keynote speaker to events in 27 countries around the world. In, in lieu of sleep, he has decided to also become an adjunct professor of marketing at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. and graduate from an equally hard to pronounce Goisweta, I hope that's correct, uh, business school at Emory University. Ladies and gentlemen, I am beyond honored and thrilled to have my very special special guest. Rohit, are you there, sir? I am. Thanks for having me, Tim. And uh, I appreciate you saying that uh, all of these things are in lieu of sleep because it certainly feels like that sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm reading your bio and I need a nap just, uh, <laughs> just thinking about all that great stuff um, that you're doing. How long have you kind of been involved in this overall, the, the marketing space, if you will? Um, and then also, of course, when was the first time that you started thinking like, man, if I just start collecting or curating or looking at some data and, and basically connecting the dots in your mind to share with other people? Well, I, I've been in marketing probably, uh, I'd say, since leaving school, even though I graduated with an English major, which uh, didn't seem uh, all that useful at the time, but it was what I liked, so that's what I did. So what was um, the goal with that? You, you went to college, obviously. You, you got an English degree. Were you going to become a teacher, or did you want to become a writer, or what was that? Honestly, I, I mean, I love to write, but uh, I just enjoyed those classes and, and uh, the people, you know, and so much more than I was taking business classes at the same time, but they just seemed like they were filled with more serious people. Um, and, uh, and so English was just what I was passionate about. And specifically, I, I used to do a lot of screenplay writing. So the type of writing I was doing was not like the great American novel. It was more writing uh, things to be performed. Wow. And actually, you know, it's interesting. That's great training for being a marketer if you think about it because every word that a screenwriter writes is something somebody says out loud so it's human dialogue yeah and really uh, in addition to that it's funny you mentioned screenwriting we, we have not talked about this before but I'm actually a huge screenwriting fan I, um, I'm one of those weirdos that in my spare time still reads movie scripts but uh, I find the same thing uh, being a marketer myself but also I find not only the human dialogue but really the ability to tell a story and a story of transformation, you know, the hero's journey and all of the great stuff. And the thing that I, I wonder if, just now knowing this, because this is something that stuck out to me about screenplay, the reason I tend to like it is for reasons that some people hate it, and that is that it can be at times pretty formulaic um, as far as they have, you know, the 12 plot points, if you will. Yeah, and, like Snyder. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, Save the yep. Cat. I, yep. I mean, a bunch of other people where it's just like, hey, these are the, uh, the, you know, we start off where we meet the hero, then we meet the antagonist, then he has his first failure. And, and believe it or not, for me, I like having those points kind of to act as buoys or boundaries because that helps my mind know, hey, we've got to sort of stay between the lines to try and get this optimal result. Yeah, I think that you know people don't tend to read. It's actually a nice segue into um, into the book and your question about why the book. Because I think that in life as well as in movies, there is a real pattern that is controlling what the story is. But 
kind of seeing that doesn't necessarily diminish it. In fact, it actually does the opposite. It helps you to understand the world around you. And so for me, a lot of what I do and what I advise people to do in non-obvious is be, uh, be the sort of person that pays attention to the world around you instead of having your face down in the phone. So not be observationally lazy, which I think is too easy for us to be. Yeah, I think we're so, and it, sadly it seems like it's becoming more and more like this, we're so self-obsessed. And when we're bored, I, mean, I remember being a kid and feeling like I was bored from about age 7 to age 18, but that just doesn't seem to happen with people, kids, where they just, I remember just sitting places and just people watching and and looking and trying to just see my surroundings and now sadly like the majority of us I'm not even paying attention when I'm driving because I've got to check my latest Facebook update or Twitter feed or something trivial like that yeah there's a lot of distraction I mean there definitely is but I think that the world is controlled by interesting systems if you start to pay attention to them so you know one example that I talk about in the book is of being at a one of these fancy dinners and having that one waiter come around and take everybody's order and then 10 minutes later 16 people show up and they get everybody's dessert and they put it in exactly the right place and I'm sort of watching this wondering how everybody knew where to put the desserts and the code that I uncovered was if you ordered dessert A then your spoon was at the right hand side of your plate and if you ordered dessert B the spoon was at the top of your plate and so any, well, all anybody had to do who was delivering the desserts was just look at where the spoon was and they delivered the correct dessert. And, you know, that's something like that is like so trivial, right, that we don't typically pay attention to it. But it's a perfect example of the sorts of codes and systems that power the world around us. And if we just open our eyes a little bit, I mean, I guarantee you everybody listening on your call has the ability to pay attention to that. They just may not have the desire to. Yeah, well, I think it, it sounds like it comes from uh, a place of curiosity, uh, and, but how much of it is curiosity and how much of it is kind of on the other side where you feel like you get a little insider peek into something that most people don't, or you have a better understanding of that business, how they run, and like you say, you, you have their, their insider tip that they know that most people don't. I mean, how much, so how much of it is curiosity-based for you, and how much of it is really trying to get an insider uh, feel or a better understanding of what's going on in that business? Uh, curiosity is huge. I mean, you ha do have to have that curiosity in order to even care about something as, as minimal as that. And I think, you know, the other thing we talked about is, is the power of observation and being observant. And, you know, one of the things that I, I share in the book is that there's five specific habits that people who are able to see these things and who are able to predict the future, which is kind of the premise of, of the book, um, there's five specific habits that they have, and two of them are curiosity and being observant. Uh, so, you know, you're sort of leading towards that behavior, because one of the things that I really want to try and do is advocate for people to have a certain type of mindset to be able to see these patterns that usually we just walk right past and don't notice. So where did all this come from? Were you always a curious child? Uh, have you always been curious as the inner workings or maybe the things that most people wouldn't pick up? Where, where did this fascination or this interest with kind of observation, curation, and trend spot, uh, spotting start for you? I think for me it started from paying attention to what people would react to in order to understand people. So... For me, it was a lot about understanding what people reacted to so that I could influence them and uh, be more persuasive. Uh, not necessarily for sales, although I guess I did kind of do some sales of random things at various points, but for me, it was more about just understanding what made people tick, and that's what I started paying attention to. And it was only when I entered the professional world that I started finding huge value in what I now call intersection thinking, which is taking ideas from very different industries and very different places and smushing them together to create something new. And I sort of landed on that by accident because I spent many years working in large marketing agencies where I would have clients from very different industries that I would be dealing with on the same day. So in the same day, I'd be you know, helping one client develop an enterprise marketing strategy for a microchip and also working with a toothpaste brand on how to promote better oral care for people to use their toothbrushes. 
Wow. Now, you, you covered so much there. So let's start with the reaction of people and how you kind of got to observe that. Was that in dialogue situations? Was that more of kind of just watching people interact with each other? When, when you talk about finding out or judging or, or watching the responses of people and their reaction, what type of situation was that typically observed in? Uh, so, I mean, <laughs> total truth, uh, I'd say that situation number one was trying to understand women. <laughs> that, that's, I, you know, I, I've talked to so many marketers and writers, and that we all have come up with the idea that uh, marketing is really also a lot like uh, working or uh, dating with women. It's like you're trying to figure that out and, and put out your best offer, if you will, a la marketing, and, you know, try to get that uh, next step in the, in the marketing process. Yeah, honestly, I mean, that's probably one of the first places it started from. And I think the other part was just being in a marketing sort of role, you're always presenting. Uh, and so, and actually, you know, one of the things I teach now at Georgetown, aside from marketing, is public speaking and pitching. Because it's such a powerful skill to be able to get in front of a group of people. It doesn't have to be a keynote to 2,000 people. It's, you know, you could be in front of three people. But being able to relay your ideas with power in a way that people then understand and react to and act on is a really, really valuable skill to have and to practice. Yeah, and I also think, you know, going uh, to credibility and authority building, I mean, the ability to command the stage, even if you're just up there sharing your information. I have seen in my own business and life the transformational effects. And I've gone to events where I've been a, a keynote or a featured speaker, and I've been to events where I've just been an attendee, and the information I have to say or share remains the same, but people's reaction to it is very interesting. When I'm on stage, you know, they, they're, they can't wait to talk to me afterwards, they seek me out during the conference, things like that, but if I say the same exact thing as an audience member, it doesn't seem to carry the same weight as credibility as, as when I am a speaker. Yeah, I mean, part of your, what you're talking about is our perception based on the situation that we're in. Right. right? Um, and that is definitely true. I mean, I speak at all kinds of events now, and, and it is very different how you get treated as a speaker, as a keynote speaker, or as a, a sponsor, or God forbid, a vendor, right? Right, yeah, yeah. Hey, <laughs> thanks, like yeah, thanks for paying here. Yeah, we're going to make your life miserable for three days. <laughs> right. Yeah, hey, why wasn't your booth open at 8 a.m.? Be like, because the event didn't start till 10? So, yeah, I've, I've seen some horror stories for that, where people have paid thousands of dollars and, and treated worse than the uh, the staff there, if you will. Yeah, it's uh, it's not a uh, – I mean, we, we generally, in our uh, business context, don't do a great job of equalizing the treatment and the value of, of how we treat people based on their situation. I mean, you know, just to give you an example, one of the things that I decided when I started the, the publishing company that you mentioned is that I was going to treat my vendors the same way I was going to treat my clients and my authors. Uh, and so, you know, when just the very simple thing that like if somebody indexes one of my books for, from Idea Press Publishing, I'm going to send them a copy of the book. And you would be amazed at how, like, one of the indexers I used for one of our projects sent me an email back uh, saying that they'd indexed over 800 books and they've only actually received maybe three or four of them from the publisher. They never get sent the book. So, yeah, they're totally forgotten in the process, yeah, but it's a, totally. critical, it's a critical thing that needs to happen with every book. Wow. Yeah. You know, and, and I mean, a lot of books don't have indexes, but, you know, of the ones that do, like, the indexer never gets it, right? And I just kind of thought to myself, well, that's not the kind of business that I want to run. I mean, I want something where even the vendors feel like they're contributing something powerful. Yeah, I think that's huge. I was actually at a, a conference. It was a business uh, mastermind conference, if you will, um, and it was interesting because they had the CEO of a company and, like, one of his former employees, and it was very recent that this employee had left, and they actually ended up having it out in front of the entire uh, group, and we were all kind of sitting there, and one of the things I'll never forget is he was, like, he was really hurt that this person left, you know, and, and I remember he was like, why did you leave me, you know, at this critical time, and she just told him she said if you treated me like you treated your customers I would have never left but the way that you treated me as an employee she's like I just would never have stayed and but he literally had no idea and I think sometimes I know I've been guilty of this um, it, much like in relationships the people closest to us are the ones that seem to always get the brunt of it because of the familiarity um, and the fact that unfortunately we, we 
take people for granted or situations for granted and we just think, oh, that's just how it is instead of how it should be. Yeah, we do. And I think, you know, one of the things that it comes down to is empathy, right? Because one of the descriptions that you'll often hear about empathy is putting yourself into someone else's shoes. And when you think about the difficulty of doing that and remembering to do that, that's that's huge. I mean, we, we easily forget to do that. Yeah, no, I, I'm 100% guilty of that. And it's it's interesting when situations, when people have said, like, have you ever looked at it from the other side? And then you do, and it's like a moment of clarity. And I, I also agree with you where you say it's very tough to remember that. It's great to do it after the fact, right? You can say after the fact this is it, but, but uh, in the moment it, it is very hard to kind of leave your own body, if you will, and go into that person's. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that you have to do as a marketer a lot of times is establish empathy with a target audience that's unlike you because you're not always going to be trying to promote a product or a service to someone that is exactly like yourself. And so one of the things that I often talk about, one of the tricks that I use to help give myself empathy for unfamiliar people is I'll go into a big uh, bookstore in an airport or, or somewhere that has a large magazine rack and I'll go off and I'll pick up magazines that are clearly not targeted towards me and I'll buy them and I'll flip through them and I'll read the language and I'll look at what the ads say and I'll look at who's featured in them and I'll start to understand yeah I could pick up a magazine target a gossip magazine targeted towards teenage girls and I probably haven't heard of half the stuff in there but just the fact that I picked that up and I started flipping through it and I started reading it and started paying attention to it means immediately now I'm going to have more empathy for uh, someone who's a teenage girl, even though clearly I'm not that. Right. No, and I think that's a great uh, empathy exercise of, of doing that. And again, I think that's very difficult because uh, I know people, myself included, that have their beliefs that are their beliefs that are their beliefs and they don't want to ever allow things to challenge or get in and they feel like, well, if I look at the other person's perspective or I read the literature that that person subscribes to, you know, I'm immediately going to adopt those negative uh, feelings or emotions or ideas instead of like you where it's just like I'm just doing this as an empathy exercise and just to get better understanding of a market that I may one day want to serve. Yeah, I think the the worst word that marketing ever co-opted was evangelist. Right. Um, I hate evangelists because, you know, what an evangelist does, either with religion or technology or whatever you're an evangelist for, is they go off and they explain to people why their point of view is superior to anyone else's, why their product is superior to anyone else's, why their technology is superior. And I just don't think that's the right way to go. I mean, I far prefer instead ambassadors, right? Because what an ambassador does for countries or for products or for anything is they represent why something's good, but they don't force you to change your point of view. Like an ambassador for uh, Colombia is not trying to convert you to become a citizen of Colombia. They're just trying to promote the fact that Colombia is a great place to visit. They're just telling you all the awesome things. Right, I get yeah. it. Yeah, they're not trying to make you a citizen. If you'd like right. to come, they'll join you, but they're just advocating for their position instead of saying it's yeah. the one true position that must right. be Whereas bowed they, down uh, and respected to. Yeah, whereas an Apple evangelist thinks you're a moron if you don't have an iPhone. Right, right. And typically when you get in conversations with those people, instead of saying like, hey, I can see it from your side or, you know, this is why I love it, it, it goes from, hey, this is my favorite thing, that's your favorite thing, great, we both have things to, you know, I'm right and you're wrong. And that, of course, is a natural source of conflict. Yeah, I mean, the world needs less evangelists like that. <laughs> that is my point of view. Yeah, I love that. And I love the ambassador point of view, too, because it doesn't diminish anyone else's ideas or thoughts, or, and it respects them through the whole process, but it still allows you to share your view and also, like you say, not get upset at the end of it and be like, oh, I'm right, they're wrong, you know, I'm smart, they're stupid, all of those negative uh, emotions that sometimes get lumped in and associated uh, with marketing. Right. Yeah, that's crazy. So when, when you first got started and interested in, in curation, was there a certain process that you were going through or certain topics that you were kind of trying to figure out or do some trend spotting and, and asking, hey, this is what's going on or this is what I think might be happening in this market? Like what – I mean I'm just so curious is like what made you stop one day and go, hey, you know what? If you combine this thing and that thing together, it makes this. So what was the beginning? What did that look like for you? Well, I, I think the first thing that, uh, that we've got on – we've got a – point out here is our brains as humans naturally 
curate ideas. I mean, we naturally find connections between things that don't necessarily exist. I mean, if you've ever seen uh, one of those examples, it's like a psychology test where it's like a half for, it's like a um, an A where the top parts of the A don't connect, but your brain still sees it as the letter A because it just fills in the part that isn't missing, that's missing, right? And I think that our brains want to make those connections. And so for me, curation was an interesting way of describing that. And I think many of us are probably familiar with the term curation from museums. Museums have curators. And it's sort of the same concept. I mean, it's the idea that if you're going to an exhibit of Italian Renaissance painting, there's hundreds of paintings that could be displayed. And someone has to decide what the best ones are to relay a positive experience for someone. So you're basically deciding what fits this theme and what doesn't and, and deciding what to show and what not to show in a museum environment. And I think that if you apply that to ideas, you're sort of doing the same thing, which is saying, oh, well, there's so many ideas I come across on an average day, and part of the challenge is becoming better at collecting them. And so one of the things that I advise people to do is is think about ideas the same way we think about frequent flyer miles which is we tend to collect them, but we don't use them in the same moment we collect them, right? We collect them until a point when we're going to take a trip or we need to use them for something, then we redeem them for something. And if you thought about ideas the same way, then you'd have a lot less pressure to say, well, I'm going to save this magazine article because I know what I'm going to do with it in my business. And instead you'd say, look, I'm just going to save it because later on, the meaning of it will become clear. And, and in a nutshell, that is my process. So I spend an entire year gathering ideas for my annual trend report, and I do the annual trend report every year in January. So let's talk about that because um, I, I think that uh, that's obviously what brought me to you uh, as a fan first was was reading uh, your book Non-Obvious and then going and then being so hooked at immediately going and saying well I got to go see what he said about last year and the year before and the year all that so you're collecting ideas and information all year long now are you just kind of opening up the internet and downloading it each day or is there a process that you do uh, is there a service that you use like what is your process for collecting it because the thing that I can immediately feel even physically is like just being overwhelmed by the amount of data that is created on any given day and, and the ability to one collect it in some type of meaningful and manning, uh, manageable way so it's not just bookmark city um, but then the ability to go through that and curate and like you say take, take this piece here and that piece here and combine it together so first let's talk about how do you collect all of this information because that just got to think it's just an obscene amount of content. Yeah, I mean, I would say the, the ultimate way to overload yourself is to keep every idea in some sort of digital format. And the ultimate way to avoid overloading yourself is to physically keep these ideas. And so what I mean by that is if I find a great article online, I'll print it out and I'll put it physically in a folder. I will rip articles out of magazines and put it in the same folder. I'll take notes when I go to an amazing event and I hear a speaker uh, at that event. I'll put notes in my Moleskine notebook and I'll take that page of notes and I'll put that in the folder. And so I have a physical folder that usually ends up being about three inches thick of paper at the end of the year and then I spread it all out. And I start grouping things physically by taking articles and putting them together and saying, hey, this might be the same theme. So for me, the way I curate these ideas is by physically manifesting them into uh, something that I can look at and stand over, literally stand over. Uh, I'm not my wife's favorite person anytime that time of year comes around because I take over the entire living room with this stuff. I can imagine. Um, I've got a friend. He does. Uh, he does <laughs> snail mail, and he's got a. Yeah. You know, I know you're familiar, and so is the listener of Swipe Files. And if you're not, it's just a collection of you know proven ads. And he's literally got like those 55 gallon drums full of all this stuff and anytime snail mail or sp you know spam mail or whatever they call it comes he he collects it he can't throw any of that out and yeah you want to see him and his wife get into a fight let him let him get the dolly out and roll that in one day you know to have to go find this piece or something like that so i can always imagine how interesting and exciting they, they have this beautiful home all presented and then you say okay i'm going to unpack all of this information <laughs> Yeah, and the hard part is, you know, my trend report comes out uh, every January, and so the prime research time is, and, and when I'm doing all of this is October, November, December, 
and we have a pretty big family here in uh, the D.C. area, and we invite everyone over for Thanksgiving. And so that room that I'm using to spread this stuff out is one that my kids jokingly call the Thanksgiving room because we probably only use it once a year. Right, of course. Everyone has <laughs> but a of formal dining room, right? Yes. Yeah, 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 that's right. And so, of course, it's during the time when I'm doing the research. So I got to spread all this stuff out, and then when Thanksgiving comes, I got to pack it all back in, and I got to spread it out again. So that's like an annual ritual. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious! I can I can physically or I can I can visually see that. Excuse me. Yeah, I can, because I I have had that talk. With, um, listen, we have some guests coming over. Can we? not make it look like a bomb exploded in here, you know, and you're like, I'm doing my life's work here, woman, and she's like, I know, but I need a place to put the turkey. Like, got it, got it, okay, my mistake. Yeah. yeah some, some fights just aren't worth having, that's for sure. So you physically do, now, are there certain websites that you're typically doing this, or is it just really when you have a gut reaction to something that makes you stop and say, okay, I'm going to pay attention to this and put it in a physical form? Yeah, I mean, look, the the thing is, uh, I actually, um, the, the way I describe it is I call it my haystack method. And um, the reason I call it the haystack method is not because I'm finding a needle in a haystack, as the cliche might suggest, but instead because I'm spending all my time gathering the hay, and that's what all this stuff is. And eventually, I have enough clarity to take my own needle and stick it in the middle of it. And that's what the trend is. And so the way I describe it is basically on that process of finding all of these things and then seeing the connections between them. But it's a real process of refinement. And so even though I'll have so much input, um, this will seem unbelievable, I know, but even though I have so much input, the very next step after I start to group things and theme it is to go out and do more research and get more input. <laughs> because as soon as I have grouped things into themes and I think it may be a trend, I've then got to go and do more research to see if there's enough support to actually define it as a trend the way I think about it. So let me just make sure I understand your process. So you're, you're collecting this content throughout the year, whatever grabs you, whatever um, you want to. You're putting it in a physical form, typically in your binder or your uh, moleskin notebook, which I'm glad to know that I'm not the only person that just thinks those are the greatest thing ever. Um, and, then, and then you're basically lumping that information and then once you do that, then you go, okay, well, this is my assumption, almost like a scientist, or this is my hypothesis, and then you go out to try and find uh, evidence to support that idea or to say, hey, nope, that turns out that was not um, or is not going to be a big trend for the following year. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, and, and in the book, I've, I've actually boiled it down to five steps and five words. So, you know, what you basically said in a slightly simplified way, and what I basically said in a slightly simplified way is, we start with gathering, which is saving interesting ideas. Right. Then you move to aggregating, which is curating them into clusters of ideas. Then you name them, so you create a description for what they are. Then you try and elevate them to bigger and broader themes. And then you prove them, which is validation without bias. And, and that's a great uh, question I have for you is, you know, we talked about brand ambassadors versus evangelists. So how do you stay kind of neutral in that whole process? Because I've got to think, like anything, when you have a good idea or you think, oh, man, and you spent the time to gather it, to curate it, to name it, it's kind of hard to go, okay, um, I'm going to let you go. So how do you do that without the bias or I guess maybe an easier way for me to ask the question is, how do you do that without saying, okay, I've got this trend, now I've got to go find data that supports it, instead of saying, like you do now, which is, I've got this trend, let's go see if the data supports it. Um, honestly, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, there may be something that I feel like is a trend, but it's just so emergent that there isn't a lot of hard data behind it. Because part of the challenge with the way I frame this is, I'm not just writing a book about trends. I'm writing a book about non-obvious trends. Right, right. Yeah. I can't, you know, I can't write about things that everybody's already identified as a trend. I've got to find stuff that's so new that most people aren't really talking about it yet. And the danger in that is, well, there's not a lot of hard research on these things either. Because it's so, not obvious, right. Exactly, yeah. So, you know, you're sort of a catch-22 for, for me in writing something like this, this book. Um, and so the way I deal with that and the way I deal with bias is, first of all, um, I try and elevate the thinking that I'm putting in beyond the typical sorts of bias. So, you know, one example of bias I often talk about is um, you'll see a trend, say, 2016 is going to be the year of hammers. You know, and the people who declare it the year of hammers are the ones who sell hammers. And you're like, yeah, gee, that's convenient, buddy. Um, so one of the things that I can 
fairly easily do because I'm not running a retail store and I'm not in a specific industry really is try and avoid that type of bias um, because it's not based on the industry or me just trying to sell more stuff. Right. Yeah, it's not the Peanut Farmers Association talking about how it's going to be a record year for peanut sales. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. There, there's, exactly. there's things that, um, you know, news sites or websites or things that don't have an involvement or a financial investment in that niche or that category or that business that are saying it versus me wanting you to believe my marketing message. Yeah, and I think, you know, the other motivator for me that eliminates bias is when you're out there visibly as I am as an author doing keynotes, speaking on these trends and writing books about them, you know, a lot of your reputation is based on your ability to not inject that sort of bias into it. So I'm sort of shooting myself in the foot if I'm creating self-serving trends or doing trends on, you know, like one of the things I've been asked to do sometimes by corporations is, you know, a company is selling, uh, like, you know, IT security software, and they're like, hey, can one of your trends be about IT security? <laughs> and and the answer to that's always got to be, well, look, if it's a trend, it's a trend, but I'm, I'm not going to make up a trend just to make your business look better. Yeah, right. And, and it's I, when you were talking about uh, reputation, I immediately thought, uh, like, journalist, um, because it, it, you look at the, something that happens to Brian Williams, right. a guy who has worked his entire life in journalism, you know, has gone through the gamut, you know, probably, I don't know his whole history, but, you know, print, radio, TV, makes his way up all the way to the national news, and one story, he misrepresents the facts intentionally, and he's done. And now he's, you know, working on the animal planet or something like that. But uh, the same thing could happen to you because um, your reputation and your credibility is at stake. And all it's going to take is one time for that not to be your primary concern. And then your whole world could crumble. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't I definitely don't consider myself on the level of like Brian Williams or anything. No, no, yeah, you okay, are you are uh, America's you know, new Brian Williams. Yeah, that's what I'm that's yeah, what right. I'm calling you right there, yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, at the end of the day like yeah, our, our professional rep in the professional world, your reputation is what you got. Right, and especially with with all the other wonderful stuff that you're involved in. I mean, you're a TED speaker, uh you're a keynote speaker, uh you've uh you know, you're obviously a, a marketing uh professor, uh which I think is just a great name whether you're an actual professor or not, I just think that's awesome. Um, and uh, and like you say, your reputation uh, does does do that. I'm surprised, and actually uh, think it's so awesome how kind of analog your process is, because I always joke um, that uh, that I'm an analog guy in a digital world. And as I sit here talking to you, you know, I've got the screen up with my mind map for questions. But I mean, I've got notebooks, like 15 of them around me. You know, I'm always writing things down. I I, I wonder if that helps you also get a little focus and clarity because you're not distracted. You're not constantly trying to, you know, respond to a PM or a Skype message or something like that, but you really have time to kind of sit there and let your brain do the work that we all have inside of us, but sometimes it's hard to do because of the focus and, and distractions. Oh, I have, uh, you know, the same distractions as all of us, but I think um, one of the things that I have gotten much better at is selective uh, ignoring of things that don't matter in the moment. And so uh, when my phone rings, I don't have to pick it up. <laughs> you know, when a beeping goes off, I don't have to check it. Uh, and I think it's just a mental training that you have to do for yourself. Uh, and then sometimes you can stack the deck in your favor. And, and so one of the things I do is when I'm writing, I actually, uh, most people don't know this, but on your laptop, there's probably a switch to turn the Internet off. <laughs> why, why would you ever um, shut the Internet off? Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> well, there are reasons. Right. right? <laughs> but no, I, I think so that's... I think that's use, the, use the switch. Right. Uh, because it's possible to turn the internet off and therefore you can keep working on your laptop because you know a lot of people say well okay if I'm gonna uh, unplug then I have to like get rid of my laptop and I have to like read a book or write things physically when actually you can work perfectly nicely on your laptop without distraction you just have to turn the internet off and then use your laptop for writing Right, and uh, to speak to that point, I actually, uh, I'm a little, uh, I have a little tech issue and addiction that maybe one day we can talk about in therapy, but uh, one, of the, uh, one of the things I do is I buy, I call them crappy Chromebooks, or I buy low-powered machines uh, with like, uh, like I've got this new uh, Windows laptop, it costs me like 150 bucks, but it's so slow that if I try to open more than two tabs on the internet, it just like, it just stops. It's like, nope, not doing that today, but I love it for writing. 
um, because it has you know a tremendous battery, but it's all I can do on that machine. So that machine to me now almost becomes a singular focus. And I train myself that every time I open it, I write. And really, if you do that for just a little time, it feels a little weird at first, but pretty soon, like when you open the laptop screen, your brain goes, oh, it's time to write or it's time to work. And because you're limiting yourself, you don't have to deal with all those distractions. Yeah, there's a great value in training yourself to do that. I mean, I you know we were talking earlier about ambassadors, and I have become a big ambassador for uh, Lenovo ThinkPads um, officially now because I've used them for 15 years, and I can't type on a keyboard that isn't a ThinkPad keyboard. So for me, the killer app for writing is the keyboard that I get with the with the ThinkPad. But it's the same thing. Like once you get ready for writing, like it's just got to flow no matter what the technology behind it is. Now, you know, this isn't the focus of our interview, but you said something that really struck a chord with me and, I mean, it speaks to everything that you're able to, to get done. I mean, how how do you do all this, man? Because, you know, you're speaking, you're writing, you know, you're doing probably seminars, you know, you've, you're teaching classes from, from there, you know, you're corresponding with me at crazy hours at the night to set up interviews and things like that. So, how are you doing all that? Like, what? how are you able to manage manage your schedule or your life and become more proactive instead of reactive um, and, and get so much done? Like, what have you found has worked really well for you? Uh, I'd say a couple of things have worked. One is getting smarter about what I can outsource versus doing myself. Right. I mean, that's just a basic. So, you know, I use virtual assistants. I bring in talent where I need it for various things. Um, so that's big. The other thing that you have to get better at uh, in general, not you specifically, <laughs> but people in general, um, are uh, batching activities. And so I realized what time of day is most effective for me to write. And so I never have a writer's block kind of blank screen kind of moment because the times of day, like I cannot write between 3 and 6 p.m. anytime, ever. And so I just won't even try now. Um, it's just not worth my time. So part of it is knowing your own schedule of when you can be most productive on various things. Um, and I think the other thing that's helped me when it comes to managing time to do things is batching my annual calendar. So this is something that a lot of people don't tend to think about, but when you're speaking, and you know this um, probably as well as, as, as I do, when you're doing keynote speaking, it is a seasonal thing. I mean, most events tend to be March, April, May, a few in June, then July, August, and early September is sort of dead space, then it starts up again, September, October, and November, sort of through the last week of November, and then it kind of deadens down except for that one last week in December. So now, if you think about the annual report, that I do every January, the majority of the writing is done at a point when the speaking season has completed. And so for me, I've already worked out my annual schedule to say, look, I can produce this annual trend report every year because the time when I'm doing the bulk of the writing is not the same time that I'm traveling all over the world to do keynote speeches. Right, yeah, you're not trying to pick this up or write this on your lap, uh, you know, like you say, in between gigs. And I think um, what I love what you shared there, because I've done all of these, uh, and they are tremendous, is first the outsourcing part. Um, when you find that there are people that will do the work for you and do it not at the level that you, it, you know, it's never at the level you can do it at most times, um, but sometimes I find it, it can be better, um, but it's good enough. That's what I always say. If I can get it 80 to 90% done good enough by someone else, then I can come in and put my 10 to 20% extra on there. And I don't know about you, but I find some tasks that I have found in the past to be particularly difficult, having that initial work done or that initial inertia removed by someone else allows me to go in and kind of sprinkle my stuff on top of it instead of having to have the, uh, the blank screen and starting from zero. Yep. Yeah, I think yeah, that's huge. That's yeah, I agree. Yeah, and the batching of activities, that's one I always forget, and I, I hear so many successful people tell me that, um, where they respond to email at a certain time, or um, they try to you know do all their Facebook messages. And I've been guilty, and I'm sure you have too, where you're trying to do 15 things at once, typically usually when it's family time for me, you know, and then at the end, you got nothing done at a high level, everyone's mad at you, and you're, you, at the end, you're like, I don't know what happened. Like, I, I, do I need to keep responding to email? 
email? Do I need to respond to this? Like, you, you don't have that finality or that, hey, I'm, I'm good with it because I got to this point um, by batching, where you go, hey, I got through my entire inbox, or, you know, I organized the, that set of ideas or articles. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's great. And the writing time thing, the, the one thing I wanted to mention about that is you know what's good for you and when your life is just at the chaotic uh, point. And I think that's huge because so many people, I find, they try to fight. They go, well, listen, you know, life's really busy between this time, but I'm going to shove one more thing into it. Instead of, like you saying, like, that's just not when I'm okay. Like, I'm just not going to be able to write then. I've got other responsibilities or anything like that. It's, it's funny. Um, you, you didn't know this, but I'll share it. Like, um, when we set this interview up, we set it up for 9.30 a.m. my time. Um, and I was, the first thing I said was, hey, can we bump this an hour later? And, and we couldn't. And I was like, all right, I'm going to get up. So I tell my wife, I get off, I say, you're not going to believe it. Like, I've got this interview with this guy. It's great. I can't wait. And I said, but I've got to get up crazy early at 9.30 and interview him. So you have to make sure that I'm up. And she just starts laughing hysterically. And she goes, do you remember <laughs> when you were in the military and you had to get up at 5 o'clock every morning? And I was like, that, those were not good years for me. Yes, I do remember that but it, it's it's really about setting a schedule up for success than it is setting up something that works for everybody else and, and I think that that that's a hard thing for some people to do but it's totally liberal liberating when you set your life up around your priorities your schedule and making you the most successful instead of trying to accommodate so many other people yeah I think um, I think that's key also yeah yeah so all right enough time management talk uh, let's get back uh, into this trend so obviously this has evolved over time and one thing I noticed when I I went through and I read all of I think I started off at 2011 uh, after I read non obvious I went back and read them all is I've noticed kind of an evolution uh, and a change I feel uh, in you not only your writing I feel like your writing is uh, you know improved like all writers over time but what has kind of been the big changes that from when you first got started to current day when it either comes to the collection the analysis or even just sharing this information with the world because you know it's one thing to um, to make life incredibly difficult for yourself and entitle your books non-obvious and have to find non-obvious trends but it's another thing to go you know I'm such uh, a masochist for my own torture that I'm not only going to do this but I'm going to start sharing it with the world yeah i mean uh, the biggest change for me has been an evolution from <coughs> excuse me from just looking at marketing and social media related trends to that being only one-fifth of the trends that i look at now in my report and so marketing and social media is one of five categories of trends and the other categories are culture and consumer behavior or media and, 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 and education or technology and design or um uh, economics and entrepreneurship. And so now I feel like the trend report has a much broader view of the world but still does it in a year-long time frame because a lot of times what you'll find with trends and, and futurists is the kind of job title of these people who do these trend reports and I usually don't describe myself as a futurist because what a futurist does is they look at how technology and culture and society will be changed in 20 years. And they project forward and say, well, this is what our culture is going to look like in 20 years, which is really interesting stuff. Um, but I find it to be less valuable if you're just somebody who's a uh, small business owner or someone looking for their next job to switch careers. Uh, it's a lot less useful to look at the world in 20 years, and it's a lot more useful to look at what's going to happen in the next 12 months. Right, and I think it's uh, it's also easier for you to maybe make that a little bit more concrete. And like you said, I mean, I you know, it's it's amazing. Uh, the author ex escapes me, but people who say, oh, in 20 years we're going to be talking into our wrist, and you know, or we're going to have phones that are the size of you know a, a modern day credit card, and how crazy that idea was back then. But then also having to wait 20 years to go, yep. Nailed it uh, versus, you know, someone that goes, hey, 12 months from now, here's what's going to happen. Here's the immediate impact of that. And you, you being able to validate um, or say, oh, that wasn't uh, that wasn't my, you know, I don't want to say my best work, but that trend didn't develop like I thought it would. And I, I'll be honest, that's one of the things I love about your reports is that, you know, you don't um, – 
you know, you, you don't let yourself off the hook in terms of every year you start off with uh, the previous year's trends, kind of giving a synopsis, and then you grade them. And I think that's got to be awesome for the reader, but it's also got to be awesome for you because it helps um, define what, uh, you know, kind of how you did, but it also gives you the ability to go, okay, well, if I rate myself a C on this, then what did I do or what may I do differently to get a better understanding of that market or that trend? Yeah, I mean, I try not to be too attached to the trends, right? Yeah, that's got to be tough. Like, that, as I think about it, I'm just thinking that's got to be the tough part of is because I could see myself personally, you know, especially if you, if again, you take the time, you develop it, you know, this is your baby, you name it, and then you're like, okay, well, that's totally gone. Has, has that has that ever happened to where you think, uh, or maybe you thought looking back afterwards, like, man, I, I've I've I don't want to say I've nailed it, but like this is the one, this is the hot emerging trend, and maybe you get to that fourth or fifth step, and then it just totally falls apart before your very eyes? Uh, it's usually not that, uh, that dire, stark. right? Like, how, yeah, exactly, like how it happens. Because, like, trends are points of view about the world, right? It's not like a uh, mathematical formula. And so, you know, they don't tend to crumble, like, in a moment. They usually, what, what ends up happening instead is they... Uh, accelerate less and so they go to 0 to 60 and like you know and they maybe only go to like 40 <laughs> and then they sort of fade away that's more of what tends to happen with trends and so there are definitely trends that I look back on now four years later and say yeah it didn't really materialize um, but there's a bunch of other trends that I look at now and I say oh man that's perfectly obvious which is kind of natural if you think about it because if I'm identifying a trend in a new report that is non-obvious at the time that I describe it, if it actually starts taking off and really having an impact on culture, three years from now it should be perfectly obvious. And anybody would look at that and say, yeah, duh. <laughs> you know, we get, we know that. Yeah, right, right. That's sort of the nature of, of what happens with trends, right? I mean, if they do escalate and take off to the point that I think they will, then three years later they're just natural things. Yeah, and to speak to that point, you know, I, again, I mentioned I started with the, the latest book, Non-Obvious, and then I worked my way back. There were a few of those moments when I was reading, like, the earlier reports. I'm like, well, duh, of course social media is going to be a big thing. But back then, it wasn't. But now, it was commonplace. It's like, well, of course, you know, water is wet and the sky is blue. But, like you say, when you're developing and, and deciding to share them with people, they aren't as obvious. They're, hence the term non-obvious. But um, it's interesting to, to have a few years perspective and go, man, he really did nail it there, but at the time, it, it didn't, it probably to the reader, didn't feel like it. Yeah, I mean, you know, you look at like uh, maybe three years ago, I, I introduced a trend that at that time I called retail theater, and it was all about the idea of retailers and stores taking a more theatrical and experience-based approach to what they create in the store. And, you know, now, three years later, like, all you got to do is go to some of these stores and see all of the things that they're putting into the stores, and you'd be like, yeah, totally. Yeah, they got daycares. Uh, I remember watching, the, I think it was a CNBC show, where they had, like, opera singers in one, and, and, and yeah. it's really like it, it's, a, it's a customer experience they're trying to do. And what's crazy, just a side note to that, um, because you pulled the string, was how, how razor thin their margins are. Like, I had no idea that the typical grocery store, at least according to this report, it's like a 2% profit margin. And that's just crazy yeah. to me if you think – and I remember this was back when Whole Foods was kind of blowing up, and they were talking about how Whole Foods was the toast of the town and all that. And they said the reason why Whole Foods was the model that everybody looked to is because they made 3%. And that's just crazy yeah. to me. I mean, to think about that. Yep. Like, hey, you making two? Yeah, I'm making three. And everyone's like, oh, my God, this guy's got it figured out. He knows what's <laughs> going on with that. And I'm sitting here going, what? Like a percent? Like, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem right at all. Um, so let's talk about, um, you, you've obviously got uh, your book, which I, I, I want to talk about that. But you, you mentioned on it earlier about your writing process. So the whole year, you're collecting all this information. Then at, at a time when it works for you, when do you get started? Is it October when you start kind of looking through everything? And then how long is that, that total process from maybe the first time that you crack the binder to you know, closing the proverbial digital book and saying, okay, it's good, it's done. 
Well, so I'm sort of looking at it throughout the year. I don't want to make it seem like I never touch it until in October. Right. But, yeah, in earnest, I, the research and, and kind of uh, detail part starts in October, um, and it's about three months of producing that, that report. Wow, that, that's, that's amazing. So you're looking at it, you're probably either looking at it weekly or monthly up to that point, but then you start the research process. And then the research process is really, like you say, a physical manifestation, putting it out there, kind of lumping it together, putting some uh, names to it if you can at that point, and then going out. And when you're doing your secondary research, I, because that's the part that's a little foggy in my brain, are you, so you're going out now that you've kind of had this thought or idea or this possible emerging trend, um, and you're trying to find more stories, more news articles. Like what, what is that second part of research that goes, yep, this is something that is worth talking about, or hey, I don't think it's, it's as strong as I thought it might once be? Uh, it's a combination. It uh, it does involve finding more stories and and more uh, coverage. Sometimes there's hard research that's been done by researchers, uh, like university researchers. Sometimes it's conversation with industry experts, and I might line up some interviews uh, with with experts to talk about it to get more information or the nuance of it. So just depends. Right, and then the research part of that. So. Um Man, I have so much, but I know our time is getting really limited. So let me just focus on the second part of this story, which is you sharing all of this with the world. So what was the first thing that made you think, like, okay, I, I want to share this? Like, what made you want to share what you were finding with other people? Uh, honestly, I mean, I've wanted to share it. Uh, since I started and, and in some ways I have been sharing it because I've done a lot of workshops going into companies or speaking with business uh, leaders about how to use the trends and how to think this way for their business Right. but with non-obvious the book the incentive for that kind of came from the fact that I was about to produce the fifth annual edition of the report and so I wanted to do something a little bit bigger because the report been out had been out for I mean, every year I do a new one, and this was the fifth year, so it kind of felt like a little bit of an anniversary. Over half a million people had read this report online, so there was a lot of momentum behind it at the point when I launched the book. Um, so all of those things kind of led me towards, well, okay, maybe I should do a full-length book about this, including the 2015 trends. Right, right. Uh, and, and you do, you break it down, you talk about your process in there, you talk about the key steps uh, for observation, and kind of, uh, I almost read it in part of a how-to book, like this is my process, this is how you could do something similar um, to, to what I'm doing uh, in your own uh, business or career. Now, when you got started, was it just a website? Were you, like, posting to popular social media? Like, like what was the genesis or what was the first inclination of, of this report? Was it just posting it on your personal website or a business website? Well, like, where, how did that get started? Uh, it started basically as a PowerPoint presentation. Really? Okay. Uh, and uh, it was a visual PowerPoint presentation, and then I uploaded it to SlideShare, which is a website that you can share presentations on. And um, it started to get a lot of momentum, and so I did that again the following year. Uh, then the third year I did that, and then I also created like a how-to ebook on Kindle. Right. Uh, that uh, sold pretty well. Um, and then the fourth year I did the same thing, and then the fifth year, which is this year, I did the full-length book. With it. Wow. So it, it really has been an evolution. Like say, start off with a PowerPoint, then it kind of, okay, I'm going to self-publish it. And now, um, through something I definitely want to talk about, uh, is uh, you've actually created uh, your own publishing company um, to publish this book and other authors as well. Yeah, that's right. It's called Idea Press Publishing. And to, to me, that's the thing I just like. Uh, what, I, what I love is, you, you know, he didn't go the, I mean, what, I'll ask, why didn't you go the traditional route of trying to go with like a Random House or a Penguin or, or some major imprint publisher versus just saying, not, not that I'm just going to self-publish, which is what I love to do and I do, um, but I'm going to take it one step further and create my own publishing house. Yeah, I mean, honestly, my number, you would immediately think, if you know anything about publishing, you would immediately think, oh, well, the number one reason he wanted to do this was to make more money. Um, but actually, my number one reason for creating my own publishing company was to have a higher quality book. Um, because I've published books with large New York publishers in the past. I mean, my first book was with McGraw-Hill. My uh, second book was with Wiley. And over time, that experience has gotten... Uh, to be less than it once was. 
So my first book in 2008 with McGraw-Hill was a great experience. I had professional team. They uh, edited it properly. They added great value to input of the um, of the book. They did an amazing job on the cover. They just you know they just did a professional job all the way around. And that has sadly become harder to find in the publishing industry because a lot of the really amazingly talented people in publishing are now becoming freelancers and leaving the big publishers. And so now with Idea Press, one of the things that is of the greatest value for authors is not only can they get a higher quality book because of all these freelancers that are out there that I can now bring in and hire for a project. So for example, my previous uh, editor from McGraw-Hill is now running his own business and I've hired him for one of my projects. And he's amazing. You know, he's got more than 25 years of experience in publishing. I mean, this is not a kid out of, out of college. No offense to the kids out of college, but you know, this is a guy with real publishing experience. Right, and like you say, you're able to get him kind of on a freelance thing. You know, it's interesting to me um, because uh, we were talking before our call about like Tucker Max, for example, a guy who you know was a New York Times bestseller, had really kind of invented his own thing, and then decided he was going to open his own uh, Lion Press Publishing. And when he talked about it, you know, he he said much like you that the publishing industry had changed, uh, and I equate it a lot to the music industry. Um, you know, there used to be. Um, bands that would get signed they'd get developed you know that they call it a developmental deal and they would they would work with you some would hit some would not and now it's like okay who are you what's your existing social media input uh, clout based uh, score if you will okay well we believe you have enough people to support you so we're gonna go ahead and invest in the album oh by the way we want uh, you know a 360 deal which means we get a piece of everything that you do so not only has the industry change but the the money-making model has changed and it sounds like with publishing it, it's gone that way in, in terms of they used to do everything for you now it's less and less and, and that was really Tucker's thing is like you know we had to do all the marketing and promotion for the book ourselves so why would we have a traditional publisher get to take the lion's share of the money um, if we've got to do all the work well and you know to be fair I mean I most publishers are not going to do the marketing and promotion for your book, even if they're a great publisher. I mean, that is not the role, I believe, of a great publisher. Um, a great publisher should help you create a great book. Right. A platform for going out and selling that book has got to be um, the responsibility of the author. Now, that doesn't mean the publisher can't help you with the marketing. They certainly shouldn't hinder you, which is what a lot of times happens in the uh, you know in the mainstream publishing deals, which is they'll create a extremely unfavorable deal. The author will do all the work. The publisher will will work at hindering all of those activities that the author wants to do by not showing up on time, by not delivering what they want to deliver, by not producing a great quality book. And so now it's just like it's a mismatch, right? And so the vision for Idea Press Publishing is can I create an author-centric publishing company? Something that authors would love to work with because it adds just as much value as you want from an independent publisher but lets the author keep the vast majority of all the profits and sets it up in such a way that it's so favorable for the authors because I'm an author myself, right? So I essentially tried to do this by first creating a publishing company that I would want to exist as an author. So you had a problem and you created a solution that you yourself would use. Exactly right. Which is, which is an amazing, amazing thing. Um, Talk a little bit about what you do to kind of um, let, let's do this in, in two two parts: process and promotion. So, when it comes to the actual uh, writing process for you, are you an outliner? Um, I mean, uh, or is it I'm just going to kind of sit down and tap on the keyboards? I mean, do you do you write at a specific time? Like, what is your writing process? I'm a big storyboarder, um, which is probably not a surprise considering our earlier conversation about screen, place, right? screenwriting. Um, so yeah, so what that means is I tend to think in terms of ch sections, chunks, and flow. And so what I'll do is I'll map out and outline the entire book, and I'll actually spend a significant amount of time figuring out what the structure of the book's going to be so that when I go and write, I can write it in pieces. And so to me, writing a business book in chunks and then working on the flow is, is the best way to write it because it's totally manageable with your schedule. It's not like you got to 
um, you know, be in the flow of the characters to write a novel and crank out, you know, all sorts of uh, elements of that in a short period of time. I mean, I, to me, that's the optimal way to write a business book. You write it in pieces and you make sure that the flow actually works and that it's valuable. Right, which I think is, is critical. And like you say, it's not a fictional piece where, you know, it's not, you're not writing the next Game of Thrones where you're going, okay, now what happened to Winterfell here? And, and trying to do that. And you're able to kind of, uh, as long <laughs> as you work on the overstructure and, and, and I think like you said, flow, because I find, uh, especially with a lot of books, you know, they, they can be disjointed or they can be all over the place instead of having a nice proper beginning, a nice middle, and a nice end, and, and a wonderful flow to them. Yep, that's right. So when you were, before you, you started your own publishing, what were the things that you found uh, helped you promote or spread the word of your book the best? Like what were, what were the few things that you thought um, brought you the biggest return on investment for time, and not necessarily money, but more time, kind of reach and impact. Um, oh, that's a that's a big question. I mean, it uh, it kind of depends on the um, uh, it kind of depends on the nature of like what you're trying to do at a particular time. I mean, I think, you know, I think having yeah. a seller, for example, like you know, one of the things you, that you got to do is a big time based promotion. I mean, the timing of promoting a book really really matters so for you I mean it's the new year it's a, it's new trends or not you know so so that kind of leads to that whole new year new me philosophy that we always talk about in marketing where everyone's going to change their life and, and looking for something different so is that what you mean when you when you say a time-based promotion of the time of the release is maybe at a natural time when people are are looking for new and fresh and inventive things because they're trying to start the year off differently than maybe the past year uh, partially, yes. Um, partially also the fact that uh, if you're going to um, get to the sorts of sales rankings that propel you to a bestseller and get a lot of momentum, you have to sell a lot of copies of your book in a short period of time. Right, right. Well, of course, to, to hit bestseller list, um, whether it's the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or anything um, like that. And and I, I also think uh, when it comes to promotion, uh, you hit on a little bit there, but it's also what you want to do with the book because this book has really been a launching platform for you. Uh, and please correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, the books that you produced, you know, that have opened up for you to be able to speak at TED uh, more than once, have been open up to do some keynotes and and to do some consulting uh, in the industry. So I think. Uh, a lot of authors, I find, don't think about the next step. They think, okay, I just want to get the book done and get it out. But it's like, well, what do you want that book to do for you? Yeah, I mean, that is an important thing, of course, to uh, to think about. I mean, I find a lot of authors who are maybe, uh, just to offer the flip side of y your point, they spend a little bit too much time thinking about all the things a book could do for them and not enough time on producing a great quality book. Um, because I think that you know some of the benefits of having a book are fairly well known for people in terms of having a source of revenue if it if it sells well, being able to take a platform and then go and charge to speak at conferences. I mean, this is a common model that a lot of people want to do, and I think you know the one piece of advice I would have for that is you know don't focus so much on that that you forget about the importance of just writing a great quality book, of, of having it edited properly, of making sure there's no typos in there, of, you know, all of those details that go into a professionally produced high quality book that are easy to forget about. Yeah, and you know, you bring up an, an amazing point, and I'm glad that you did it, because it is true. I have seen that too, where people just think the book is a stepping stone. It's like, oh, we'll just get that piece of crap out, and then we'll go. It's like, well, wait a second. You know, that's your calling card, and it, in this case, it's your business card. And if it looks self-produced, which we, I'm sure you and I have both seen millions of examples of that, if it has a ton of typos, if it doesn't read well, if, it, if you don't spend the money to get a nice cover made, to have a professional editor, uh, I even know a few people uh, that do self-publishing, but they actually have, um, you know, story editors and, and design editors. I mean, they have editors that really help them through the entire process. And um, without the quality of information contained in the book and the quality of the book, no one's going to hire you anyway. In fact, they're going to run away because they'll be like, well, if this is how he or she does a book, like I'd hate to see them on stage. 
Right. Yeah, and I think uh, <laughs> yeah. I think that's that's great. Well, listen, I know that uh, we have run over our time, and you've been very gracious with it. Um, one of the reasons we were able to meet so quickly, and I thank you for adjusting your schedule, uh, is that you've got a promotion coming up with uh, your non-obvious book on Amazon. So why don't you tell uh, the listener what you're doing and, and the best way for them to take advantage of it, whether it's a website or uh, where to find out more about it. Yeah, it's uh, pretty simple. For a, a week only, we are doing a uh, price promotion for the non-obvious book where you can get it for 99 cents. And after that, it's going to be bumped back up to the regular Kindle price. Um, so it's a good time to pick it up. It's only a buck. <laughs> so you know, if any of this stuff has been valuable, uh, it's a relatively low-cost investment. You just go straight to Amazon, uh, type in non-obvious, and you'll easily find the book, and it'll be on a price promotion uh, at 99 cents. And what I'll do for listeners here is directly below uh, this interview, I'll have a link to his book so you don't ha even have to go search it. Just click that link below uh, the interview and you'll be more than happy to go get it. It's it's a dollar. If you're listening to this past that week and it's gone back up to, oh my goodness, full price, pay for it. It's one of the most interesting books that you'll ever read. Even if you aren't applicable or the ideas aren't applicable, the process is amazing. And above that, you really get to see someone's um, main mission, their life's work, if you will, and, and how they develop that. And I just thought it was an amazing uh, and fascinating read, just like uh, the all too brief time I got to share with you uh, today, Rohit. Thank you so much. Before I let you go uh, to your crazy action-packed schedule, is there anything else uh, that we didn't talk about that you'd like to cover or anything that you'd like to share um, or leave the listener with? The only thing I'll say is uh, that my business card uh, describes me as three things, a marketer, a speaker, and a nice guy. Um, and uh, I would invite anybody, if they do have a experience of reading the book, if they want to get in touch with me directly, there's a couple of different uh, hooks and, and ways in the book to be able to do that. And I always do respond to individuals. So I'm the sort of author that loves to hear from people who have uh, experience of reading it. So if after you do read it, uh, it, in, it inspires you to want to reach out directly to me, please, please do. Awesome, man. Well, I will, uh, I will attribute to uh, an amazing author and uh, an amazingly nice guy. Thank you so much for scheduling this today. I know how crazy things are for you. Uh, I look forward to reading uh, the 2016 uh, and beyond edition of this, and thank you so much for your time.